This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Egito Bol here for your Thursday morning. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, today on the show, it's about time. That's Torres Strait Islanders chiming in on the voice campaign. Recognition to the first Australians, you know, is long overdue. And what in the world is happening in PNG? There's more than 60 refugees. Secrets are revealed. Well, we'll get more when we join uh, with our correspondent live there later for the latest on that. But coming up, it will be elections, elections, elections. Not here, but overseas. Stay tuned for all of this. Again, I'm Aggie Tupou and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, let's head to New Zealand. The high costs of living, healthcare and housing are some of the top concerns for Pacific Islanders in New Zealand as the country heads to the polls. On October 14th, New Zealand will hold its general election. The contest is between Labour Party Prime Minister Chris Hipkins and opposition Nationals leader Christopher Luxon. Pacifica people make up about 8% of New Zealand's population and it's unclear where they'll be putting their votes, as Dubrovka Volida reports. Dave Letele runs a food bank in Auckland and he's seeing the changes taking place across the biggest city in the country. so hard just to get by at the moment, food security, paying the rent. You know, we've got families that can't pay their mortgage, they're losing their homes. You know, just a real massive need. Our food bank, our social supermarket of Tokoroa is just overwhelmed. We can't keep up with the, the support that's needed. He says on top of mind will be the cost of living when he heads to the polls later this week. His vote will go to the Maori party. My stresses are the same as everyone else. It's just like just keeping it all going because we serve a lot of people so we can't just stop. We're seeing a lot of other, other food banks having to shut down, having to restrict their operating hours, so then which puts more pressure on food banks like us. According to Stats New Zealand, cost of living is up by just under 8% in the first three months of the year. Both mortgage payments and rentals have jumped up by about 5%. Samoa New Zealander Afama Sagataele Pavihi lives in Dunedin in New Zealand's South Island. As the chairman of the Samoan Advisory Council, he says there are many people who can't afford private homes anymore, with wait times for social housing rising. A long waiting list and you have to be applying and qualified for it. Otherwise, you won't get it. Yeah, I know because I was there at the housing corporation. Now getting out of it and staying private rental and wanted to get back to housing uh, thing and you can hardly get in. He's backing a Labour government. Mass University politics professor Richard Shaw says the governing Labour Party is being blamed for many of the tough economic conditions. In the same way that every government is blamed for whatever it is that is top of mind for people when an election arrives. But these aren't new issues. These are the issues that we face in this country. Housing, particularly the affordability of of buying houses, income inequality, difficulties in accessing health care. Those are um, infrastructure issues. And those issues issues are more pressing for many Pacifica communities. Levels of income and wealth inequality are greater amongst Pacific 
communities, both recent migrants and those who, are, who have been here longer term, than is the case for the general population. Tongan community member Palanite Taungapiao, who has lived in New Zealand for three years, could not agree more. It's access to health care that he's most concerned about. The health care is the main important thing. Is the cost of living. We can't stop that. We can't because everything in the world is going up. And why should we stop it? We can't do that. According to opinion polls, there might be a push to the right. But Dr. Shaw says it could be some time before a new government is formed. All the polling at this point suggests that the National Party will be the largest party in the House, but it won't have enough seats to form a government without forming some kind of governing arrangement. So we are unlikely, I think, to know who will win in terms of knowing who will form the next government until the special votes have been counted, and that's not until the 3rd of November. And that's two weeks after Election Day. And that's Dubrovka Volata reporting with additional reporting by Marion Farm. With only two days to go for New Zealand's general elections, parties are doing everything they can to get votes in. Many, again, of the issues facing our Pacifica community here in Australia are very similar to those in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Housing, rising cost of living, health and education. So this morning, we're joined by those who represent our Pacifica communities. Online, we have New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister from the Labour Party, Carmel Sepoloni, alongside Green Party candidate for Pamua Otahu, Efeso Collins, and also independent candidate for Mangere South Auckland is Brooke Powell-Stanley. Unfortunately, National Party declined to be part of the panel today. But to the ones that are joining us this morning, I say malole so far. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. <laughs> Thank you so much. What a reunion we're having right now. Uh, but firstly, I want to say, look, as we heard from the previous package, Cost of living is really top of mind. Uh, so, Deputy Prime Minister, I would love to come to you. Why in 2023 are we still experiencing low wages, continuous high costs of food, petrol? Yeah, so, you know, this doesn't necessarily give anyone here in Aotearoa peace of mind because we all feel it very uh, intensely, uh, particularly our lowest income households and families, and many of them are Pacific. And what we did do on the 1st of April was we did lift student allowances, superannuation, uh, benefits, uh, the minimum wage again. uh, And we've continued to focus on the policies that will offer some reprieve to families. Uh, Moving forward in terms of our offering that we've put on the table in our manifesto uh, going into this election, uh, the things that we have put out are things that would benefit Pacific communities in particular. And just one example of that would be the the free dental care for under 30s. But there's a range of other things. And so we want to continue to do this work. We have lifted wages for New Zealanders, particularly our lowest income earners in this country. And we've done that every year since we have been in Uh, with respect to the minimum wage, but we need to keep doing that work. And that's not guaranteed under a coalition of National Act and New Zealand First. Thank you for that, Deputy Prime Minister. This question I want to pose to all of you, because as you have said, uh, Deputy, the supply and demand often, uh, people have classed it as it being in shatters. Now, boosting housing supply is a significant part of creating affordable rentals, but can more be done? Can I come to you, Efeso? 
Yeah, good to see you again. It's been a little while since we've uh, been able to be with you here in New Zealand. Look, there's got to be more done. And I think what we've seen over perhaps the last 12, 15 years, which is in the last four or five election cycles, is we lost houses under national. We were, there were state houses that were sold off. We were, there was a net loss of 8,000 houses. We've seen an increase under this government of around 12,000, 13,000 state houses. So that's good. The Greens want a bit more ambition and we want to build faster. And our commitment is to build 7,000 houses to completely clear the wait list in the next five years. But we know that too many families are paying too high a proportion of their income on rent. That's the big problem. On average, many of our families are paying around 70% of their disposable income on rent. When all of that money's gone, you're left with virtually nothing to put food on your table and pay your bills. So that's the challenge of the cost of living. I think we've got to understand too that there's some macro issues here. You know, we've had pipeline issues, we've had the war in Ukraine. All of that has seen an increase in the costs of petrol, the costs of getting supplies into New Zealand. So Look, that's one part of the conversation, but the other part of the conversation is what can we do to alleviate some of those challenges? We've got high excise taxes on petrol, and we know that for Pacific people in New Zealand, we drive bigger cars that are older cars that take a lot more petrol. So most, so much of our money is going into petrol. So we as the Green Party want to encourage more active transport, get people onto public transport. We had a, a period of time where we had half fares for a while. We'd like to see that come back and have pub- public transport fully funded. So I think there are ways that we can mitigate the cost of living crisis, but we've got to look at packages rather than just one or two things here and there. FSO, I want to come to you, Brooke, because as much as we talk about uh, cheaper transport, FSO, I respect that, but I know someone like Brooke who uh, the organisation that you work for, Auckland Action Against Poverty, having to try and eliminate poverty within one of the biggest uh, areas of our uh, Pacific people in South Auckland. Brooke, have you been able to achieve uh, trying to eliminate poverty under the current government? Or do you feel if there is going to be a new one that will do any better? Uh, thanks for having me, Aggie. As FSL said, it's really nice to see you again. We've, um, I've always really loved your work. Um, I think why it was important for me to run as an independent candidate was so that I can be uh, really staunch and say things that need to be said. I think um, we haven't been able to eliminate poverty and I don't think the Crown will do that because we live in a system in which um, poverty needs to exist. It's a core part of the colonial framework in which we live Um, and until we address those systemic issues the fact that we need poverty um, the fact that experts are saying there needs to be a certain level of unemployment um, for businesses to thrive uh, and then also we have parties that are okay to punish people on benefits we're never going to really address the fact or or um, talk about and have conversations about actually what can we do what, especially within the crown space, what can be achieved together beyond what this house looks like? Um, what can we all achieve together to ensure that poverty doesn't exist, not only here, um, but so that we can also be an example across the whole world? Um, we have so much in the world for all of us to be well and to live well. It doesn't have to be at the expense of each other. It doesn't have to be at the expense of Papa Tuanuku, um, our planet. And I think we need to be thinking about and having conversations at this level, especially in the crown space, um, especially with climate change um, and especially with uh, a just transition, talking about what are the models that we can adopt 
um, to ensure that there's a just transition for everyone. Um, and in my mind, eliminating poverty is part of that strategy. I like that. Now, we talk about New Zealand being such a well-developed country, but yet the stats say that Aotearoa is more expensive than 81% of countries in the world. Uh, it's a pressure that's probably unprecedented needs addressing. I talk about rentals alone. I want to come to you, Deputy Prime Minister. One in three rent, and some are paying more than really 30% of their income on rent. How are we going to do this better if you are to continue in government? Well, firstly, we need to keep building the houses. And so, as Efeso has said, you know, we have been on track with our build. We too have said that by 2027, we want to have 27,000 um, public houses in total that we have built. And so, certainly, we have to be aspirational and we have to do the mahi to get that done. Uh, some of the things that are not going to be helpful are things like with the opposition currently saying that they are going to allow foreign buyers to come back in and buy New Zealand homes, uh, getting rid of interest deductibility, uh, doing things like getting rid of the 90-day um, or, or no-cause eviction uh, part of, of tenancy agreements. So Fano could just be kicked out uh, without any rhyme or, or reason. Um, and so I'm really concerned about the fact that it could even get worse uh, if they had an opportunity to implement their policy. What we are seeing is that under us, uh, during our time with the changes that we've made to housing, I think that we're at something like 27% of uh, of the home buyers are first home buyers. When we first got in, it was 20%. And we want to encourage people and support people to be able to buy their own homes where that is possible, as well as being mindful uh, of the regulations around renting uh, to ensure that our people who may be vulnerable in that situation uh, aren't exploited or put out on the street in any way. And so, you know, there's certainly lots to do in the housing space. We'd all agree with that. And uh, the measures that we've undertaken have been really important. What is being proposed by the other side is actually incredibly dangerous and would potentially hurt our community uh, more than many other communities. Yes, unfortunately, they're not here to speak for themselves, Deputy, but uh, I want to stick with you, though, because you are proposing to remove GST from fruit and veggies. Why not all food, though? Oh, very complicated, um, even just removing from fruit and vegetables. Um, but this was the starting point, and, you know, it, it makes sense in many ways. This is the uh, part of the uh, grocery list that is often left off because of the fact that uh, fruit and veggies can be deemed to be too expensive. Um, and, you know, so there are flow-on effects to being able to make those particular foods cheaper in terms of the health and well-being of our people. Um, and and also it's easier to uh, target fruit and veggies than what it would be to then try and uh, uh, implement that across the board. There's also the fiscal considerations. You know, we always have to take that into consideration. Anything that we put up, we've said that we can pay for. Um, and so we're very mindful of proposing policies that can be paid for. Um, and we're very mindful of any policies that could actually have a counterproductive uh, impact. And then instead and I'm not saying this is one of them, but there are other policies that could end up driving up interest rates and inflation. The perfect example of that is National's proposed $16 billion tax cuts. FSO, your thoughts on that? Are you happy that uh, Labour would introduce uh, removing GST from fruit and veggies? 
Yeah, that's been a long time discussion. I think that's that's good on their part. I think the Greens are taking a slightly different approach in that we want to strong arm our friends in the Labour Party to a wealth tax. And we proposed a wealth tax and an increase in corporate tax rates uh, to 33 cents in the dollar as well as making a more just transition in the tax system. So what we're saying is if you get less than 1% of the the wealthiest families to pay a 1.5%, 2.5% wealth tax, that'll bring in $12 billion in the first year and $14 billion in the second year. And what that will pay for is our income guarantee policy. So that's a flat rate where everyone over the age of 18 gets access to $385 a week. And what that does is it changes the game. It lifts, it actually lifts people out of poverty. It gets them over the material hardship line. And it means that they can live not just lives to survive, but lives that are meaningful where they can flourish. So that's the first thing. What it'll also pay for is dental free policy, our dental free policy right across the board. So uh, we're taking a universal approach at the Greens, which is from cradle to the grave, you will have um, free oral care. And what we know from oral care is it suggests a whole lot of things about the condition of your heart, levels of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, so we can monitor all of that. But again, when it comes to housing, clearing the wait list is our priority, making sure that came order. Uh, given the mandate to build 7,000 houses a year. And we've got to build with that level of intensity because we know that so many of our families, this has a cumulative effect. If you're not living in the same house for a period of time, then you're moving around. It impacts on the kids going to school. The kids are unsettled. Parents, you know, we know that there's a whole lot of dis. I guess dysfunction that comes from having to move, you know, when we all grow up with these three or four families in the one three-bedroom house, it's tense and it's hard. And so we've got to do more to really push the boundaries on how we build houses. And that impacts on climate change too. I think one of the things that we've got to come to accept is that the, the quarter-acre section is gone. That's, a, that's an Australian dream. If people want that, they can go and live in Australia. The fact of the matter is here, we have to intensify. I live in an apartment complex with 95 other people in this one complex. But you build the complexes so that people can stay. It's cheaper to build in an apartment. And that way you can stay. You're closer to good amenity. And it means people don't need to use their cars all the time. So you've got to look at the whole package rather than just, oh, well, let's just keep building these quarter-acre houses because I think that's a thing of the past. Mm. Look, uh, Deputy Prime Minister spoke about removing GST from fruit and veggies. You talk about uh, introducing wealth tax, uh, FSO. I come to you, Brooke, because I know that you are a big advocate uh, when it comes to income inequality. How are you going to improve this? I think I'll continue to do the work that I've always been doing with Auckland Action Against Poverty, fighting for livable incomes. Um, and like FSO says, it has to be a package. Um, I also really As I mentioned earlier, we have to look at actually changing the system. Climate change is already here. We're already experiencing the impacts of that, especially in Mangere earlier this year. um, They were deeply Mm -hmm. impacted by the floods. And so um, what's been missing, I think, from this election is the connection between poverty and climate change and how we're going to address those things, but also a just transition. No one has been really talking about what are the plans or the models being put forward for just transition. Um, And I think this is at a level at which we should um, respond to in the same way that the government did to COVID. You know, things literally changed overnight during that time period. And there were so many things that were done so quickly um, to ensure that people were safe and protected. And I think in the same way, 
that's what I would continue to advocate for, that we need to look at changing our whole system because uh, climate change is here and what are we going to do to ensure our, our reconnection with Papa in some ways um, is smooth and gentle for all of us. And I think it, we have a little bit of time to prepare for that now. Um, and I think this the influence of the crown space is so powerful. The types of conversations and actions and behaviors and leadership in this space influences how then we are on the front line in our communities, um, what people feel brave enough to come forward to and speak to um, and act to. And I think that kind of power shouldn't be taken um, lightly and that it should be used in such a way that's responsible um, and honest and being real about what's actually required, um, not only for our communities, but for all of us. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, re I really would continue to push for livable incomes and universal services, um, which is making more things free and accessible to all people to ensure that everyone's protected through a just transition toward what's been set out um, in the offering of Matike Mai, which is constitutional transformation. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister, you've heard, Brooke, there, uh, livable incomes. Can that be possible under your government? I mean, South Auckland has been considered labour strong for so long. What if it changes? Yeah. So we have said that we will continue to lift the minimum wage year on year, and that's not necessarily a commitment that we're getting from the other side, um, and that we want to see the gap between the minimum wage and the living wage close. And um, What we did do in the last term was we moved to ensure that uh, public sector employees were paid the living wage. Then we extended that out further uh, to people that were contracted, particularly security guards and, and cleaners, uh, to the public sector. Um, the next steps are extending that even further uh, to ensure that all people that are employed by our public education system, including people like our caretakers um, and people that are employed by Te Whatu Order, are actually getting the living wage. And so it's important that the public sector leads the way um, in terms of uh, providing a living wage. However, at the same time, we need to be lifting the minimum wage uh, to push those incomes up and closing the gap between the minimum when, uh, the minimum wage uh, and also the the living wage and and that certainly is our intention. I do want to add too that it has been really important over the last few years that we provide people with the opportunity to upskill and train, uh, particularly in areas where they can get better pay, uh, where there are workforce shortages uh, and trades and building and construction are just one example, but the health workforce is another. Um, and we've put a significant amount of investment into those areas, which is a benefit to our people. You know, we've seen over 60,000 people through apprenticeship boost. Uh, we reinstated the training incentive allowance. So around 5,000, mostly sole parents, have been able to pick up study and get that grant again off the back of the National Party cutting it last time they were in. And we need to keep doing that because lots of our people have aspirations uh, and, and you know, of course, want to work. We want to support them to be able to work in the best jobs possible for them uh, and to help them actually achieve and meet those aspirations that they have for themselves and their families. I have to talk just, about sorry, aspiration. Yes, yes, go ahead, bro. Sorry, I no? just want to jump in. I want to be really clear that livable incomes is about actually lifting benefit levels as well. So we want to ensure that benefit levels are also lifted to livable income levels, um, that student allowances are lift, lifted to livable income levels, that people on pensions are also receiving that, people 
on disabilities, people who are looking after um, our families, people who are volunteering or doing care work in our communities, looking after our children. Um, I think that we've become so focused on the only pathway out of poverty is through work. And I really want to push for, and we have been pushing for at AAAP, that our worth isn't determined by our work. It's determined by our existence. We need to move away from thinking that people are only um, valuable when they provide work in an, in an economy. We are not mm. economic units. We are whole people. Um, and this is really harmful rhetoric that we're continuing to push and have pushed since the introduction of colonial capitalism in this country. Strong words there, Brooke. Uh, if yes, I have to come to you, because look, former Auckland councillor, mayoral candidate, uh, you were with Labour, now you're with the Greens Party. Why the change? And do you believe our people are wanting to see some sort of change now? Yeah, look, we remain a pretty broad family uh, on the left. And I think all I was looking for was opportunity. And then the opportunity arose that, you know, the Labour's got some great candidates and they've got people who've served the community for a long time. I've stood, stood alongside them for many years uh, and this is an opportunity for us to just push the, the messages a little bit harder. Uh, and you know what I'm like. I've never been one to kind of back down from what I really believe. And that's why I thought, oh, yeah, I can get away with a few more things with the Greens. And that's why I joined the Greens. I, I really want ambition. I want us to get out there and go handy on representing our community. And the opportunity ro- arose with the Greens. And I think, you know, I look, dare I say something like this? I didn't know that I'd ever say this in a, on an Australian uh, program. But I think we can look there are some things we can learn from Australia and one of those things is the income free threshold where it's tax free and in Australia the first $18,000 is tax free the Greens are proposing $10,000 tax free which puts $25 on average straight back into everybody's um, back, back pockets. The, the, the National Party are talking about ta- you know giving tax breaks to people at the higher end the Greens are about making it fairer. We'd like to see a progressive tax system so that people who are, who are paying over $150,000 will end up paying around $0.45 cents in tax. We've got this real issue in New Zealand where we're scared to introduce fair tax. And I think it's just been pushed by those on the right, which is why I'm really disappointed no one from nationals come onto the program, because they have to answer to those questions. And what we should be doing is we know that when it comes to jobs, and Carmel's touched on this, when it's come to jobs, we've got to upskill. That's just the way the knowledge economy works. That's just the way the West is. And I know Brooke will struggle with those comments because that's what capitalism looks like in a modern era. But if we can upskill, then that's great for people because they're, they're moving into different bands where they can earn. But Brooke makes a really sound point that this isn't just about my values and my work. My value is the fact that I'm here. I'm part of a family. I'm a person. I'm a human being. And that's why the Greens are set on an income guarantee. We don't need to call them benefits fits anymore. We just call it an income guarantee where everyone gets the same amount and that's $385. And it's not until we start to inverse what's been going on. We're never going to end this talk on capitalism because we just keep tweaking on the sides. And I'm tired of the, you know, let's just work on the margins. We've got to Mm. get to the core of these issues. And that's what's at the core of these issues is a system that has continued to marginalise those who bring so much. We're the best key workers. We're the best when it comes to the academy. We're the best when it comes to sports and to politics. We're the best. The Pacific people are the best. Look who you got on your show today. And (laughs) what we've got to do is show ourselves to be that 
And you've got to win a society over, and that's where the challenge is, is we've got a whole lot of people that just think, no, the current system works for them. There is advantage in the current system. And mm. what we've got to do is invert that, a, to completely convert it so that everyone's given a fair opportunity. Yeah, I've got to jump in there, FSL, because, look, the latest polls are sitting. Uh, national, 37%, Labour, 28%, Greens, 14%, Act, 9%, New Zealand First, 6 and Te Pāti Māori are sitting at 2%. Uh, Kamal, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, I've got to come to you because people are wanting to trust uh, that you are able to take us through to the next round of government. Uh, but you're sitting at 28%. Are you a little bit uh, scared that you guys won't make it? I'm oh, never scared. Um, just in for the fight. We've still got a couple of days to go. Um, I'm always a little bit uh, you know, dubious about the the polls. You know, I ask specific people all the time, did you get a phone call? Um, it, it, and I've, I haven't come across anyone this campaign that is specific that I've asked or any groups that I've asked who said that they've participated in any poll. Um, now, I know that, you know, we're only a proportion of the population, but I think there's a whole lot of people out there that have different views. There's also a lot of undecided voters. And I think over the last week and a half, some of them have looked at what National Act in New Zealand First could particularly bring, uh, if they, in particular, that they would bring if they were in government. And I think they're a bit fearful of that uh, now, given some of what we've seen, the lack of evidence behind their costings uh, and mm. a range of other things. So we've just got to turn our people out uh, to vote. And I think actually what we have seen is a bit of a trend. You know, the left has been going up a little bit in, in recent days, especially. And I think that that's energizing our voter base. Uh, we want our people to get out. My message to our Pacific community when I've been going around has been make sure that that decision on October the 14th is a decision that's been made by our community, not one that we've left to others to make. And so you know, I just we're really pushing the the voter turnout at the moment and wanting our people to have a hand in that decision. Beautiful. Uh, to come to you, Brooke. A vote for you means what? <laughs> a vote for me means um, a vote for our communities. Actually, I think I I really love and believe in the Mangita community, but also in our wider communities as well. I believe in South Auckland. I believe in us. Um, and the reason why I do the work that I do is because I really love us. That's something that really um, drives me uh, is love um, and care for us and for Papa. And I think um, we need solutions that are grounded in love and care at the moment. Thank you. Efesel, a vote for you, your party. What does that mean? Oh, it's a, a vote for hope. It's a vote for planet and people first and foremost and making sure that we address climate change, we overcome inequality and we've got a sustainable environment leading into the future. All of us are parents. All of us will be leaving children behind one day and we want to make sure that Papatuanuku, that the earth, that the planet is sustainable such that we are giving back to. And I think we've mistreated the planet for far too long. And I think often that's come because we, we get lost in the consumption ideas because it's the easy way. It's actually the way of the poor too because that's what they just throw at us say these these cheap two dollar goods and we've become consumers of that what we want to be is people who really participate in the world but my message to our people is to vote 
And the fact is our people aren't voting. Whatever the polls are saying, I hear, I'm with Carmel on this, the polls can say whatever they want. The fact of the matter is our people can change the result of this election if they vote. Where I'm standing in Pamua Otahu, 33% of people in this area did not vote. More than 15,000 eligible voters in Māngere did not vote at the last election. And I'm guessing that Carmel's probably got similar stats in Calston. And it's our people. And it's our young people, it's brown people, and people feel so disengaged and disenfranchised when we stand up and say, we represent you. And dare I say, it doesn't matter who, get out there and vote. Because, you know, the research tells us as well that when our people vote kind of up- uplifts the left anyway, so I'm happy <laughs> with that too. But the point I'm making is if we don't vote, we can't just sit back and say, oh, doesn't affect me. It does. It mm. definitely affects you. You've got no house. You've got no state house because of a decision another government made. Yeah. You've got no livable income because of a decision the government made. All of these things are political choices, and the choices are who we put into power. So I'm. I know I'm getting a little bit passionate here, but I mean, all of us. Yes. I, I think even Carmel. It sounds like you've, you're starting to lose your voice as well. My voice is munted, <laughs> and Paul Brooks been out there. I've seen Brooke on heaps of things to push people to vote. It's too important not to vote yeah and i want to encourage our people that's the answer get out and vote you've got till saturday 7 p.m you can do it today just go to the library or your church next door to be open for you to vote. <laughs> here we go use someone else's wi-fi just get on there uh guys i do have to do a quick just round because we have to wrap up but i just want to know men <clears throat> when come election day on saturday whoever wins whatever is there a meal that you're going to be eating straight after i have to come to you deputy prime minister what's the meal you're going for <laughs> I, I haven't even thought about what I'm going to eat at this point in time. Abby, you know we love to eat. Chance. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to say what a vote for me is, but that's all right. <laughs> I do want to acknowledge, though, that I've known Efesa for like about 30 years. We studied together. We've worked together. I've known Brooke for years because I worked with her mum over 20 years ago. <laughs> we are connected to each other. We are connected to our communities. And I think this is a really important point. Um, you know, the statistics around our Pacific people uh, are not – uh, for uh, that, that, they're just statistics to some people, but for us, these yeah. are our communities, these are our families, and so um, I would say collectively, you know, we're all in this for the right reasons, and we know intimately how our families are affected mm. by the challenges that we face. And I do believe that the three people that you've got on here uh, do genuinely care about our communities and are in it for the right reasons. Absolutely. Um, Still want to get your meal though, Efeso and Brooke. What are the meals you're going to be eating? Uh, um, to be honest, anything my beautiful partner makes for us. I haven't, I'm like, come out. I haven't really thought about what I'm going to be eating on Saturday. I've been thinking I'm going to go on a diet after this. <laughs> oh, Fessel? Aggie, I'm pleased to tell you that I have been thinking about what I'm going to be eating <laughs> on that day. I said to my wife, I really, I really, I'm starting to crave supper sui because we only eat supper sui on a Sunday, so. you know, after church. Mm. And so um, supper sui kalo and a bit of alifu on it as well. That'll be where I'm heading. Sounds beautiful, guys. That makes me miss home. But I really do appreciate all three of you joining us this morning. I know we've got to end it there, but all the best for the elections this Saturday. And, of course, the reminder is to get out and vote. Vaftai lava. Good to see you. Take care. That, of course, is New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister from the Labour Party, Carmel Sepuloni, alongside Green Party candidate Efeso Collins and independent candidate Brooke Powell Stanley here on Pacific Beat.
Welcome back. Yes, it is time for News Wrap. We are joined by the beautiful producer, Talia Auli-Itia. With that, I say good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Aggie. <laughs> well, look, we'll get it straight into it because I believe a repatriation flight from Tel Aviv has arrived in Nandi this morning. Yes, um, to a huge warm welcome from Prime Minister Sidavani Rambuka, who was there at Nandi Airport in the wee hours of this morning for a welcoming ceremony for the 255 passengers aboard what was a chartered Fiji Airways repatriation flight from Israel back to Fiji. Fiji Airways Flight 2394 landed at Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv on Tuesday night with the sole mission to bring those people home. The Fijian government reports that the 255 inbound passengers um, on board included students from Fiji's Agricultural Institute of, of the Centres of Agricultural Technology um, who were there in Israel just studying agriculture as well as 200 Fijians who had journeyed to Jerusalem to partake in the Feast of the Tabernacles as well as a group of Pacific Islanders. The Fiji Village reports that Minister for Home Affairs and um, Immigration, P.O. Tiko Nduandua, um, confirmed that the flight also brought back 13 Australians, 16 New Zealanders, eight Samoans, two Canadians, two Filipinos and two Americans. Now, as you can imagine, it was a very warm welcome, um, as showed by the Fiji government on Facebook Live this morning. And this was a bit of Prime Minister Sidaveni Ram Booker extending his sincere appreciation to all parties involved um, in making the mission a success. Welcome back. 198 nationals, 48 fellow Pacific and international pilgrims who have been safely evacuated from Israel in a daring rescue by our trusted airline, Fiji Airways. And today I stand with all Fijians to command the valor, the sacrifice, the tireless efforts of all who organize this daring but very well planned and executed repatriation of our fellow citizens and pilgrims, probably the most daring operation we have executed so far in the history of our alliance. And that was Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka. Uh, Intalia, can you give us the update on the latest from the conflict? Yeah, it really remains a dire situation inside the Gaza Strip and it's becoming increasingly more desperate with urgent supplies of food and medicine unable to get in. Hospitals in Gaza are running out of supplies while the territory's only power plant has run out of fuel, forcing it to shut down. Um, this, of course, comes after a deadly attack by um, Hamas militants. Israel stopped the entry of food, water, fuel and medicine into Gaza and has been bombarding the territory with airstrikes. Um, in Israel, an emergency unity government and war cabinet has been established with ambition now turning to a possible ground offensive against Palestinian militant groups Hamas and more than 2,000 people have died on both sides since the weekend. Meanwhile, the Australian government is also working to repatriate stranded Aussies in the region, announcing two flights to leave from Tel Aviv to London tomorrow. So, yeah, definitely difficult times. Uh, definitely. But, uh, look, we'll keep our eyes and ears on that. We appreciate you bringing our news rep for this morning here on Pacific Beat. Want to immerse yourself in sport and stories of athletes from across the Pacific? Well, join me, Bobby McCumber, alongside some of the most talented journalists and sports commentators from across the region for Fresh Off the Field. 
Each week, we'll bring you interviews with Pacific athletes leaving their mark on the international stage and those aspiring to do the same. From cricket to netball, athletics to rugby and everything in between. Fresh off the field, Thursdays, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. Well, in a few days, Australia will hold their historic referendum on whether to recognise its First Nations people in the Constitution. On some remote islands, though, close to the Pacific, voting has already taken place. But as Marion Farr reports, traditional owners in this part of the country are divided on whether to vote yes or no. On the Torres Strait island of Mabuyag, traditional music played as voters had their say. Leading the Yes campaign was traditional owner Abba Babia. Recognition to the first Australians, you know, is long overdue. The referendum is asking Australians if they support changing the constitution to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as the first people by enshrining an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Mr Babia says for him, it's a no-brainer. We have provided evidence that we have existed on the island for more than 7,000 years. In context, we've been occupying the land and sea for more than 2,000 years before the pyramids were built in Egypt. Voting took place on the remote island two weeks ago, but the majority of Australians will cast their ballot this Saturday. In the Torres Strait, opinions are divided. Jack Sagigi, a descendant of the Wakad tribe on Badu Island, is planning to vote no. We don't need to be an advisory for the government. Let's sit down and have a treaty. The proposed voice to parliament would be able to tell the government what it thinks about matters of importance to Indigenous peoples, but it won't have the power to change or veto laws. For Jack Sagigi, that's not good enough. We don't sit at the table where the law decisions are. You know, we're, we're, we're three steps under. For others, including Badu resident Gillian Bowie, reaching a decision has been difficult. I was sitting on that fence for a while and trust me, it started to feel like a barbed wire fence. Um, it wasn't comfortable at all. She says there's been a lot of confusion about the issue. So I listened to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of articles, asked a lot of questions. She cast her vote on Badu Island late last month. I felt confident in voting yes, but there was always that niggling voice in the back of my mind. Am I doing the right thing? Made up of 17 inhabited islands between mainland Australia and Papua New Guinea, the Torres Strait has played a crucial role in the fight for Indigenous rights. In 1992, Mur Island descendant Eddie Koiki Mabo secured recognition of First Nations peoples as traditional landowners. Ned David, who heads up the Gur Abarakod Land and Sea Council, says constitutional recognition is the next step. You know, we're strong believers that um, something enshrined in the constitution provides that level of protection, gives, I guess, uh, that thing that um, we all want, you know, a bit of certainty. Separate from the voice to parliament, the Torres Strait has also made its own bid for self-determination, outlined in the Massig Statement, otherwise known as the Voice from the Deep. Signed by local leaders in August last year, it proposes self-governance and regional autonomy for the Torres Strait. Ned David says that's something his people will seek, whatever the outcome of this week's referendum. We want to be able to run our own affairs. Uh, we want to be able to make you know, our own decisions. 
and we generally want to exercise some levels of self-determination. And that's Ned David, Chair of the GPK Land and Sea Council, ending Marion Farr's report. Pacific Beat. A political disagreement could be brewing between Papua New Guinea and Australia over the funding for the secret deal made over refugees and asylum seekers in PNG. More than 60 refugees remain in PNG from Australia's offshore detention program on Manus Island. Many say some of their services have been cut at their accommodation and they feel they could be evicted with service providers claiming they haven't been paid. For more, let's bring in PNG correspondent Tim Swanson. That I say good morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you very much, Tim, for joining us. Uh, take us back. What's happened with the refugees and asylum seekers? Why are they still there? Yeah, so, I mean, we're effectively talking about a group of 62 or so refugees and asylum seekers that are still here in PNG. They're in Port Moresby, and they're basically the remnants of Australia's offshore immigration detention policy. And that policy has been quite controversial over the years, basically started a decade ago. It was called the PNG Solution, where these asylum seekers and refugees that were trying boat arrivals to Australia were taken to Manus Island and put into detention. So there were up to about 1,300 men at one point on Manus Island. That closed in 2016 when PNG's Supreme Court found that it was illegal. So over the years following, uh, many of those men, some were resettled, um, you know, other arrangements were made for, for many of the men as well. Um, but uh, basically, quite a few of them, um, hundreds of them, ended up moving to Port Moresby. So these are basically the last 62 men left, and some of them have brought their families over here to Port Moresby as well, while they're awaiting third country resettlement. So some are pursuing options like the United States and Canada. Um, New Zealand, of course, as well, um, has announced a resettlement pathway for some of these refugees, and that deal has been struck with Australia. So there's only a few left, but it's still, of course, taking quite a considerable time for these resettlement pathways. Now, meanwhile, these refugees are in Port Moresby, and they're quite concerned about their safety. They say they don't sleep very well at night, and they say they're easy targets for petty theft and that kind of thing. Um, But they also now are saying that services are being cut by providers, and they're receiving threats of eviction because those service providers are complaining about non-payment. So here's Shah Nawaz Hussain, a refugee that I spoke to the other day. I can't sleep properly. Three hours, four hours, five hours. Very difficult for me. I never like no good sleep without peace. Always thinking about these things because sometimes I receive texts, uh, they will evict me or he will evict me from the accommodation. Not only me, like others, uh, all of the refugees and asylum seekers. Mm. Tim, I do want to know, what was the agreement that the two countries actually signed? So after the period in which Manus Island closed, effectively Australia was kind of directly looking after the men here in PNG, right? It was paying for service providers and that sort of thing off its own bat. But now we've kind of approached this sort of second phase, if you will, which is Australia basically handing off the responsibility to the Papua New Guinea government, or rather it's done something in a in a bid to do that. So in December 2021, uh, the Home Affairs Department in Australia signed a confidential bilateral agreement with PNG's Immigration Citizenship and Services Authority, or ICSA. Um, and basically, the there was a funding arrangement that was attached to that agreement, 
where it was basically saying PNG is going to support the management of the uh, men who are left. So under that funding that the Australian government agreed to give Papua New Guinea, it said that PNG would provide the settlement welfare and health support for these remaining men in the country. Tim, has PNG government actually given any response to this? Well, so what Papua New Guinea has basically said is that, and I've spoken to the Chief Migration Officer, Stanis Hulahau, about, you know, these these concerns and the threats of eviction and that sort of thing. He's saying that Australia is the one who effectively have unpaid invoices under this agreement. He says that he's used to that funding coming in on a six-monthly basis, he said, and that Australia hasn't paid under the agreement since the start of this year. So he says he's had difficulties effectively since the change of government in the election last year. Here's the PNG Chief Migration Officer, Stanis Hulahau. Because it came about as a result of a bilateral agreement, a bilateral discussion between the two former ministers that led to this arrangement. So the Papua New Guinea is committed uh, to providing the support. Uh, so we are looking at Australia to continue their level of commitment as well. But if that level of commitment is not forthcoming, then together we are looking at mutually uh, working together to come up with an arrangement where, where we either relocate these refugees back to Australia or we look at uh, Australia providing the resources to Papua New Guinea uh, to continue to maintain that service. So, so those are some of the discussions that, that we are having at the moment. Mm. So then what has Australia had to say in response, Tim? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a it's a very serious thing that PNG is saying, that basically it can't afford to continue funding the program for the refugees and that if Australia isn't funding, then uh, one of those options that Stanis Hulahau was just saying is that they may be forced to basically send the refugees to Australia. Now, the Department of Home Affairs have basically strongly refuted this account from PNG's Chief Migration Officer. In a statement, a spokesperson for Claire O'Neill, Australia's Home Affairs Minister, basically is refuting those allegations. It said the agreement was made to begin in 2022 until the end of 2025, and it was meant to be reporting up until the end of 2023. And it said that the last payment was made in July 2022, but that was as per under the agreement and that there are no outstanding payments. And it insists that the PNG government has the responsibility for integration, resettlement or return of the group of people. So we've basically got the two really at loggerheads here. You've got the Department of, or rather you've got the Migration Department in PNG, that effectively feels that providers haven't been paid because there are outstanding invoices, something that's being strongly refuted by Australia's Home Affairs Department. So it does appear that, uh, you know, they're going to have to try and hash this out and sort this out in meetings in coming weeks because we've got these refugees basically stuck in limbo and saying they're not getting the services that they need. Tim, we appreciate your time this morning. Uh, Thank you very much for the insight on that. Uh, Hopefully we can still keep in touch and keep our eyes and ears on the story. You're welcome. No worries. That is PNG correspondent Tim Swanston. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. I'll be back next week at 6am PNG time. Tomorrow is Richard Hewitt with your sports edition. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia though, because news is next and coming up after that is Nisha Daily. And we'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat was broadcasted on the lands of the Boonarong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Pacific Beat.